Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Here we are, everybody. 50 episodes the big 5-0 we're officially middle-aged can you believe it i can't i mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was about a year ago now actually i think it was a year ago today as we're recording this that our first episode was really yeah wow that was a surprise (laughs) yeah let's cheers again on that yeah you guys can hear it from afar oh super happy that's a real happy cheers and to mark this 50th anniversary is the 50th anniversary of another movie well, it came out in 68, but <laughs> it was being made in 67. Yeah, totally. 50 years ago. And that is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Fucking huge, huge business. A truly classic film. Directed um, by Cube. Not Ice, but Stan. <laughs> Stan Cube. Stan <Rick>. Cube. <laughs> Before we get too excited with that, first of all, guys, you know, since we're 50 episodes young... We would always like to implore you to continue to rate and review us on iTunes. Please do. Let us know how it's going for you. If you have any cool facts you want to share with us, whatevs. Yeah, and thanks so much to those of you who have been reviewing us. Mm-hmm. It's really, it means a lot. Yeah. And we, we're glad that you guys are enjoying the show. Warms so, my heart. Thank you very much. Now, should we jump right into this trailer? I think we should do it. Let's do it. Your destination, your nationality, and your full name. Moon, American, Floyd. Just a moment. Just a moment. Do you know what happened? I'm sorry, Dave. I don't have enough information. Made radio contact with me yet. The radio is still dead. Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Hal? This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. How many times had you seen this? I've seen this movie... Ooh, I don't even know, like maybe 15 times. Yeah. Because I, I used to rent it in high school and watch it over and over and over again. See, I had never seen this. It had always been on my Netflix queue, but it was one of those like, mm, the time's just not right. Yeah, you got to be I in the right mood. Yeah. yeah, it is a very like epic, you want to have all of your attention focused because it does require a lot of focus, right? When yeah. you say... Yeah, def- well, yeah, because like the more you're focused, I think the better the movie is. Yeah. Like the more you're, you let it capture you... Yeah. And you well, notice these little details. And you really have to engage. It's such a visual stunner because there's like 88 minutes of dialogue-free time in yeah, this film. So, it's, I mean, it's mostly like a classical composition over beautiful space footage. Yeah, yeah. A total mindfuck. Like, this was the last movie made about men on the moon before Neil Armstrong and yeah. Buzz Aldrin walked there in real life. Yeah. So, it's like during, deep into the Apollo program. Yeah. In fact, in 68, when the movie came out, is when we men first went to the moon, yeah. didn't walk on it. So apparently, after seeing a documentary called To the Moon and Beyond at the 1964 New York World's Fair, that's when Kubrick hired one of its special effects technicians, Douglas Trumbull, to work on this film. And oh. Trumbull was the guy who was responsible for this process called slit-scan photography that was able to create the crazy Stargate sequence at the end. Ooh. So it basically consisted of like moving the camera rapidly past different pieces of lighted artwork, including aerial 
footage of Monument Valley, Utah, with other aerial shots that were originally meant for Doctor Strangelove. Oh, really? So they were shot through like colored filters with the camera shutter held open to allow for this kind of streaking effect. So that's what yeah. created this feeling of the audience like plunging into the infinite. Well, that's the thing. The, the light show happens, and then like pretty far <laughs> into the light show, it like you start realizing like, oh, it this is, is a like a, this is like footage from a plane yeah. overlooking like a desert of like Arizona or something. Exactly. Utah. But with like the yeah. colors are are all backwards, yeah. so it's like it's a green ocean and the sky is red. So crazy. Yeah, yeah. And according to Tremble as well, the total footage shot was some two hundred times the final length of the film. Could you? That's the editing process. Crazy. Ugh, it's already pretty long. <laughs> it is already a fairly long movie. <laughs> well, this was co-written by Arthur C. Clarke, and Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick were working together so closely on this whole thing that they were originally planning to have it be screenplay by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, mm -hmm. based on a novel by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick. Right, so right. So it's like the, the names came first in their respective fields. <laughs> totally. But then what wound up happening is Arthur C. Clarke has sole credit on the book, but he's like since said that the nearest approximation to the complicated truth is that the screenplay should be credited to both of us and the novel should be credited to both of us. Right, totally. I mean, equal amounts of work. It was cool to think that the book came out after the movie did. Yeah. And Kubrick was kind of serious about that. He was like, nothing can mess this up. Well, originally they were just going to do the novel mm -hmm. and then make the screenplay. But yeah, it's like, it, it's such a crazy, like the, the book really is a companion piece to the movie because mm -hmm. the movie doesn't really explain itself. No. But the book totally does. Well, because I also learned that the movie originally had a bunch of like narration put over it, but then mm -hmm. they later decided to take it out and just have it be. Right? I mean, because ultimately you're kind of like, what am I experiencing? Mm -hmm. Now, I also read that the joke working title was how the solar system was one yeah. now that's of course a spin-off of how the west was one but it's because the original concept was a series of short stories like spanning decades like how the west was one right was. okay but just like showing a lot of different explorations on many planets and moons and then ending with the sentinel showing like the uncovering of the monolith on the moon. right well this was based loosely on a short story by arthur c Clarke called the sentinel mm -hmm. which is actually about an alien machine that was buried on the moon and that the idea being that when humans reach the moon, it like sends out a signal to the aliens to basically say humans have left Earth. Right. Okay. At, like warning, there's a new life out here. <laughs> yeah. And that they like put it on the moon as like a trigger. And I think yeah. that's such a cool concept. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then also like when they ended up choosing 2001 Space Odyssey, right? Well, first of all, it was being inspired by Homer's The Odyssey because Cooper uh -huh, was saying yeah. like in the same way that the oceans seemed like the final frontier for mm -hmm, that gender, the Greeks mm -hmm. back in the day, you know, the space is the final frontier for us. So absolutely. it makes sense. So there's the Odyssey, but then also 2001 being the first year of both the 21st century and the third millennium. Uh -huh. And later, Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke apparently held a press conference in 99 and said that he was dismayed that so many people were incorrectly calling 2000 the beginning of the century. Because the wheel, the one. the one was the, yeah. But like, it's such but a I great, get it. yeah. yeah. I totally, I remember Smarty people pants. saying that around the time yeah. of like the 2000 New Year's. Like, it's not really the new millennium. It's like, fuck Shut you. Up. It's yeah. 2000. Yeah. It's the year 2000. You're not going to let us be excited <laughs> exactly. about this? That just completely falsifies all of Prince's party like and it's 1999. If he yeah. was like, party like it's 2000 and then you die. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, one thing I remember about this movie was that when I was in high school, I had a science teacher who told me that his friends would eat marijuana-laced brownies <laughs> and go see 2001 right. in Cinerama. 
Oh. And which he described as a three screen widescreen theater where oh, it's like right. three projectors creating an incredibly wide screen. I feel like they do that at I don't know if it's Universal Studios well, or Disneyland or whatever. Cinerama don't like that it was like a big thing in the sixties and it's really been taken over by IMAX and stuff. Sure. There's only like three Cinerama theaters left that in the world that actually can do the three projection thing. One of them is here in LA at the Cinerama Dome. Oh, we have a Cinerama Dome? Yeah, on Sunset. I want to go. Yeah, it's really awesome. But like very few things are actually projected with the three screen projection. It's like there's like a modern projector and it is a very wide curved screen. But like, yeah, just thinking about like in 1968, this incredibly wide screen with weed and psychedelics becoming commonplace. Oh, yeah. You know. Well, because well, and early on when the when the movie was reviewed by, you know, the old elitist movie critic uh-huh. stiffs it wasn't it didn't do very well but then like that's crazy and like mgm early on was already planning to pull it back from theaters like i think it was Cary grant or something that was like if somebody could explain to me what that movie was about you know it's just it was new people didn't know what somebody the fuck can to expect. explain it arthur c clark in his book exactly read it well, because the original release they had like a mini documentary at the beginning explaining this shit but Whoa. then when they when they screened it early on people were like take that you yeah. know, because they were yeah. just like the mystery. Right. The, yeah. Well, but also then other people were like, oh, you should put it back in because then people don't know what's up. It's like, dude, let's not try to please everybody with this right. film. How about that? But also so theater owners were noticing an increasing number of young people coming Ooh. to see the movie and watch it while eating psychotropic drugs. Yeah. So that worked. <laughs> so they were like, keep playing this. I yeah. think something's happening. Here. Yeah, totally. They're like, these kids are real excited. They're telling their friends. Well. Let me talk about Arthur C. Clarke for a second, because he wasn't just a sci-fi writer, but he was also an inventor and an undersea explorer. Really? And a straight-up science writer, like a non-fiction science writer. Oh, cool. And during World War II, he was a radar specialist and was actually involved in like the early warning systems that helped them win the Battle of Britain. Oh, yeah, and wow. then and he was like known as the prophet of the space age because he was so good at predicting the future. And in the fifties, he moved to Sri Lanka. <laughs> Right. To pursue scuba diving. And while he was there, he discovered an underwater temple. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's literally a... Yeah. And then on top of that, he had this idea that there may be an orbit around Earth, which is commonly known as geosynchronous orbit, but he predicted it and it's often called the Clark orbit. And that allows us to do satellite communications. Far enough out from the Earth, there's a specific orbit where... As the satellite orbits the Earth, it's orbiting at the exact same rate as the Earth is turning. Oh, so it stays exactly above the same spot of Earth as it goes. Okay. And that allows us, yeah, to communicate and stuff. But that's really perfect for GPS satellites. Uh-huh. So the Clark orbit is one of the most important orbits that we can send Fuck. satellites into. Thanks, Arthur. Yeah. Well, he also said that Kubrick had wanted to get an insurance policy from Lloyd's of London. (laughs) He wanted to protect (laughs) himself against losses in the event that extraterrestrial intelligence were discovered before the movie was released. Whoa. And Lloyd's refused. (laughs) Whoa. They were like, nah. (laughs) I don't think we might lose this bet. And of course, like Carl Sagan was later saying, he's like, in the 1960s, there was no search being performed for extraterrestrial intelligence, and the chances of accidentally stumbling on you know ETs in a few years period was extremely small so Lloyd's of London missed a pretty fucking good bet (laughs) (laughs) could you imagine they're like no it's fresh it's right around the corner it's definitely gonna happen as we hit the moon yeah yeah and fucking yeah. Sagan, like Sagan's involvement in all of this too, yeah. of being like, he was approached by Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick about 
you know, how best to depict extraterrestrial life and intelligence. Uh And he was basically saying, like, alien life forms are unlikely to bear any resemblance to human life forms. So there would be, like, an element of falseness if they were to pursue that. Instead, he proposed suggesting rather than depicting extraterrestrial superintelligence. That's why we have these fucking robots that are just... Howling around. <laughs> Sagan, you know, just howling around with his house. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, yeah, Sagan is amazing. I mean, the fact that he was this involved in like 1968 mm-hmm. and then 10 years later does the Voyager probe and then yeah. like 10 years after that does Cosmos. Cosmos. It's like, what a career. God. <laughs> Moment of silence. R.I.P. Yeah. Uh, R.I.P. Well, the guy who directed the sequel to 2001, Mm -hmm. which is called 2010, went on to direct the movie Time Cop, which we're doing next. (laughs) Such different (laughs) types. Although I haven't seen 2010. I actually really like it. It's not like the cinematic masterpiece that 2001 is, and it's a pretty straightforward narrative film. Right, right. Like, it has voiceover. You're never confused about what's happening or Mm -hmm. why. One of the interesting things about it, though, is that because it was written in the 80s, in 2010... America and Russia, or America... (laughs) They're having some issues. And the Soviet Union are, are, yeah, it's like a joint mission to Jupiter between the two countries, but then while they're there, war breaks out between America and Russia. And it's, you know, it's about that. Icy Cold War tensions. Exactly. But I still, I really like it. I I recommend people check it out. I'll have to, to give it a watch. I mean, I definitely admitted, like, watching 2001, that I understand why it's kind of a polarizing movie. I understand why maybe audiences today would would have trouble following it because of the silence, right? It's like we always need the bleep bloops and the who's it's and what's it's right. keeping us. But until Wally. Yeah. Wally had no true. dialogue. Wally No, nah, I think I think it's just a per person kind of thing. Yeah. It's ten years before Star Wars. Yeah. It looks better than Star Wars. It inspired David Bowie's breakthrough single Space Oddity. No shit. Hello. Yeah, Space Oddity is of about course it right? is. Growl what am I even questioning? <laughs> Because all of his outfits were basically like, starting. Whoa, Space Odyssey, or Oddity. <laughs> exactly. Jesus Christ. There you go. See? That's why it's like, what am I even... So in this movie is one of the most famous examples of a robot killing people. <laughs> right. He was Getting, the original. Becoming a murderer. Yeah. Hal, the original murderer. Yeah. Uh, my dad's name was Hal. Oh, <laughs> so no. Like, oh, yeah. What did H-A-L stand for? I forget. Oh, it was something, but Some, he just... L is Hal laboratories. Right. Let me look that up. Did you know that he originally was supposed to be like a mobile robot, but Clark was so concerned about it looking super outdated that they were like, just have it be that laser eye. No, that's yeah. awesome. The omnipresent red eye, so it's just timeless and classic. Yeah. Evergreen. Oh, wait. He's the heuristically programmed algorithmic computer. Whoa. So it's H from Hal. heuristically and Al from algorithmic. I thought it was... I thought the L was laboratory. Nope. Well, fuck me. Fuck you. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So there are some current examples of robots killing people. You know, these are like industrial accidents, like robotic assembly arms malfunctioning and hitting somebody and breaking their head off. That's old school. Yeah. And then there was actually a story of like a malfunctioning robotic cannon that killed a bunch of people before they could shut it down. Because I guess, you know, as these... Robotic guns come online in oh. various wars. Fuck it, yeah. Well, well you, we've talked before, forget the episode, but we talked about like electric cars or sh- it's things that can be hijacked or uh, rather self-driving cars. Yeah, can things be hijacked. that might be able to be, anything can be hacked, Yeah. right? And then there's stuff like the flash crash of the stock market in 2010, which was caused by AI software that got confused and started a cascading selling spree that caused the market to lose a trillion dollars in 36 minutes. Oh! 
the, the, the causes of this are pretty complicated, but like a good part of what happened was AI software fucking up. Gotcha. But let's talk about the AI robot uprising. Yeah. You know, let's, let's not, just fuck do financials, that. Fuck around, right? Yeah. We already see bots are ruining people's lives on Twitter. <laughs> They're advertising to peeps. So. <laughs> exactly. But so there's the the canonical three laws of robotics as put forth by Isaac Asimov in his book, iRobot. And these were, number one, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. Okay. Rule number one. Number two, a robot must obey orders given to it by a human being, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. That's uh, confusing. Really what that is, is like, like you can't, someone can't be like, kill that person. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You can't direct a robot to break the first law. But other mm -hmm. than that, if anything you direct a robot to do, it has to do. Right. The third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Mm -hmm. So you can tell a robot to kill itself, but it it's won't kill itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in iRobot, these three laws break down because the larger AI's understanding of the laws changes as it realizes that humans are harming humans. And in order to save humanity, it may need to kill some humans. Oh, fuck. So true. Right. So this would have. Yeah. Like this has the AI breaking rule number one to not break rule number one. Mm -hmm. And I guess. If there's an AI that can start thinking that sophisticatedly, like to think differently about mm -hmm. an established idea, we don't know what it's going to do right. next. Like at that point, we're so far beyond the singularity that I don't know that we would shut it down or, yeah. or what. <laughs> this definitely came up, obviously, in Ex Machina, but in uh, Robocop as well, where mm -hmm. it's like, you know, he's there and he's been programmed to like not hurt anybody. And it's like these things have conflicts in life. And then there's the concept of like down the road, the three laws could just break right. down. And it also is, it's predicated on the human error, right? Right. Like, they're supposed to be serving us, but we're destroying ourselves, too. So, right. like, what kind of example are we setting? <laughs> exactly. Wow. Yeah. You know, Hal's voice, that just iconic, like, yeah. Hell. He never actually says, good morning, Dave, apparently. I read that. Does he not say good he morning? He does not. But I, I heard Hello, that. Hello, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Hello, Dave. But also that Stanley Kubrick rejected the at the voice actor's portrayal because he thought it had too much emotion in it oh i think it was originally supposed to sound more robotic as opposed oh, to human okay. voice yeah so i actually thought that's more creepy because it's this omnipresent creepy red eye mm -hmm. with like a unsettlingly soothing yeah voice. well his whole like i'm concerned about the mission dave yeah you know but then singing daisy as it's dying is like Ugh. like and you do kind of hear the emotion it's like i can feel it I can feel it. Right. Stop it, Dave. Stress what are you doing, Dave? Right. Oh, stressful. Yeah. So, <laughs> this movie begins with the dawn of man. The ape-like creatures are actually just humans in makeup, which was pretty sophisticated. I, I read that early audiences didn't know. They were like, where did they get such well-trained monkeys? <laughs> yeah. They got like a bunch of mimes and dancers and put some good makeup on them. Yeah, but Cirque I didn't... du Soleil performers and gorilla yeah, suits. exactly. So good. I'm like, flexible. These creatures are called australopithecines. Pythocines? We're going to battle this throughout the whole time. Australopithecines. You, you, and then you've heard Australopithecus? Yeah, Australopithecus afarensis, I think, is the Lucy yeah. discovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah Lucy, we'll talk the, about Lucy if anybody's mm -hmm. heard about her. But basically, these were early hominids. This is People equate this to being like the missing link in human evolution. But the known fossils range from about 1.2 to 4.2 million years old. So that's a huge 
stretch of yeah, that's a huge stretch of time. time. So it's hard to make any definitive statements about it. But so the, the term Australopithecine was originally coined by Raymond Dart, who discovered the first specimen. And it just means southern ape. Okay. But but what really set these folks apart is that they were bipedal, bipedal. However you want to pronounce it. They walk it. on their two feet, yep. just like us. And their arms were also shorter in proportion to their height than those of an ape, but not quite as short as a human's. So hmm. it did seem like it was this transitional thing. But some people doubt as to whether these particular creatures were actually ancestral to modern humans, since Homo habilis and Homo erectus, which are both generally accepted as our, our original peeps, they were said to have coexisted with... Australopithecus. Australopithecus. Yeah. <laughs> Already, I forgot. But they've were said to have cohabitated for more than a million years. Yeah. Well, you wonder too when these evolutionary trees branch off. Mm-hmm. Like, does that mean that the previous one goes completely extinct, or does it live around while there's the higher evolved beings for a number of years before they die? I out? think that. I think a lot of times people like to imagine it as being this very linear thing, where mm-hmm. it's like when you look at the tree of life, it's not linear. Right. That's why it's a fucking tree. It's a tree. It's. <laughs> What what tree is a line? All right, right birch trees, shut up. <laughs> right, shut up, you. Leave me alone. <laughs> so there's two general forms found, um, which are the, the gracile forms, if that's how you say that. They're the graceful, little, spelt, skinnier ones. That's what mm-hmm. Lucy is associated with. But then there's also the more robust forms that had, like, larger teeth and stouter skull structures. They tended towards what maybe would have been the morphology of modern gorillas. Mm. So instead of being our ancestors, it's said that maybe these Australopithecines might have just been close relatives of the forms that then gave rise to modern humans interesting so like another missing link that's a that leads to another missing link that we right. haven't found yet or something well, like that. Well, also, like, a lot of the missing links aren't so much links as dead ends on the chain. Right. You know, or, yeah. or on the, uh, the tree. It's just, it's mm-hmm. complicated. We're talking about millions of years in between. Yeah. Well, you were even talking about de-evolution last week. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about how our toes, which evolved from more hand-like into these tiny mm-hmm. little stubs, and that is a kind of version of de-evolution. Mm-hmm. You know, it's technically evolution because it's always moving forward, but mm-hmm. it's actually, we had these complicated structures that are becoming simpler because we're bipedal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, And that the, something being simple in its structure doesn't mean that it's better or worse, right? right? It's not a... It, not a pithing contest. We've come across this a lot. <laughs> but so a lot of these discoveries of the Australopithecus afarensis, they have occurred in Eastern Africa, like predominantly Kenya, Ethiopia, and Tanzania. And most of the material has been in like the northeastern part of Ethiopia. And that's where they found Lucy, which was discovered by Donald Johansson in 1974. And it was just this awesome set of skeletal remains from a single Australopithecus afarensis individual dating to upwards of 3.2 million years. And they assumed that the sex of the specimen was female based on, like, pelvis morthology, mm. just the... The, the hips. Yeah, the old wide yeah. child-bearing hips. Child-bearing hips. But in real life, they've reasoned that Lucy came in at approximately 3 foot 7 inches and weighed about 66 pounds. She was bipedal, and but also had the cranial capacity of an ape, which does show that bipedalism preceded increase in brain size during the course of evolution. Interesting. Very interesting, right? Now, of course, it's hard to really determine the brain size of, you know, Lucy because there's insufficient material to really, to estimate, like, cranial capacity. Uh Didn't they call her Lucy? Isn't it somehow related to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds? Probably. I I didn't actually find that out. Double check, yeah. Look this up. 
Lucy acquired her name from the song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds by the Beatles, which was played loudly and repeatedly on the expedition camp all evening after the excavations team's first day of work on the recovery site. That's awesome. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Yeah. She didn't have diamonds, and she didn't have... (laughs) (laughs) There were no shaped stone tools associated with these particular remains either. No stone tools, huh? Not for her. However, a recent paper reports the discovery of similar tools in Kenya that are contemporary with Australopithecine. Yeah. (laughs) That dates between 3.11 and 3.33 million years, whereas previously the earliest stone tools were dated approximately 2.5 million years. So we're constantly learning. We don't know exactly what the missing links are. but That's something that I feel like, specifically with tool use, I feel like we keep discovering, especially like over the last 50 years, we keep discovering that tool use is not only not special to humans, Mm -hmm. but more common earlier and earlier, the more we discover earlier fossil records. Oh, like earlier uh, creatures? Yeah, like earlier and earlier things seems to have used tools. And like evolution seems to really select for tool use yeah one thing i read about is this crazy like the the first tool users on earth may have been these weird sea scorpions what i didn't even know there were sea scorpions right so well this is like really earlier sure sure are there now i'm sorry i don't know (laughs) maybe there are i should look this up (laughs) (laughs) scare me every time i'm going on the ocean So a few years ago, scientists discovered fossilized tracks, Mm -hmm. which suggest that these sea scorpions were dragging something. Now, we think that they may have been among the first life to go from water to land, and they had gills on their tails. And we think that they used shells of other animals, animals like hermit crabs, although this is 300 million years before the hermit crab comes around. OG hermit crab stuff. It's something, yeah, some early hermit crab. (laughs) And they stuffed their tails into the shells and filled the shells with water so that they could go on land for short trips. Oh, smarty pants. Right? They just took a Nalgene? (laughs) Right, exactly. Or, yeah, it's reverse scuba gear. Literally. They say that even just humid air trapped in the shells could have protected the sea scorpion gills from drying out Mm -hmm. then they would graze on mats of photosynthetic microbes that covered the early earth and one scientist was even saying that if he was one of those creatures and he saw a whole bunch of microbial mats exposed in low tide and there were no predators or competition it would be like a free buffet totally I just find that so crazy just like no it's okay but just like you leave home you go to the you go to the beach for Mm -hmm. a little bit you go back into the ocean I mean it's also interesting to think about how certain isn't it something where like creatures that came from the sea, then they evolved on land and then back into the sea? Right, yeah. I wonder where they come into play there. Which ones have gone back into the sea? Are those like amphibians or, or what? Like, do we know of like specific. I don't know. Isn't it like fucking whales and shit? Wow. I don't know. <laughs> I, <guess laughs> I really don't know. The idea of 300 million years ago or more, yeah. this little sea scorpion using scuba gear. Yeah, he's like, I don't know how or why. I just know I'm going there. Yeah. I know I need to do this. I mean, and it, and of course that was selected for with yeah. evolution because they're eating a ton of sh- free buffet on the beach. <laughs> Fucking free mat buffet! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so in this movie, Dr. Haywood Floyd first goes to the Earth Orbit space station on an Orion shuttle uh, run by Pan Am, which Mm. I'm going to talk about later. (laughs) But we see the sign for the Swish Zero Gravity Toilet, and Stanley Kubrick later admitted that that 
sign was the only intentional uh, joke in the whole movie. It is a really funny joke because he's just standing there. There's like a long list of instructions of how to use the zero gravity toilet. And he's mm-hmm. just like biting his it's, knuckle. Yeah. How am I going right. to do this? It's a little stressful. Like, what? How would you poop in space? So basically, that was what I wanted to well, do. Well, how do you poop in space? I mean. <laughs> so I read this really amazing article called The Scoop on Space Poop How oh. Astronauts Go Potty. Do they use pooper scoopers? No. Okay, they so there's no something. scoop. No. No, the news. I got the scoop. I'm a beat reporter. Okay. I'm a beat reporter. Okay. So basically this guy, Mark Roberts, he's a tour guide at the Intrepid Air and Space Museum in New York, and he was giving this awesome talk about going to the bathroom in space during Space Fest 2013. <laughs> Never been, but I'm sure it's fun. So he's talking about 1961 when Alan Shepard was locked into his capsule Freedom 7, mm. and he's like ready to become the first American and second person ever to, to go into space. Mm-hmm. But before his historic flight, which was only like 15 minutes long or something like that. Mm-hmm. There were lots of delays. Five hours of delays. Mm-hmm. So he radioed to launch control. Man, I gotta pee. <laughs> so NASA officials, of course, weren't prepared for this situation. They thought, you know, the mission would be short enough to avoid it, and letting Alan Shepard pee in his spacesuit was not something they were ready to do because he was wired with medical sensors that might get wrecked if it was wet. Uh, mm-hmm. Blah blah blah. But eventually, it's like you can't. He has to go. So right. he pees and they're not pants. gonna b- unbolt the hatch, get the no. guy downstairs because like, like the launch window might open up at any second. Just pee your pants, Alan. Pee yeah. your pants. Anyway, so after that debacle, NASA was trying to figure out ways of dealing with it better. But even by 1963, when Gordon Cooper was launched on the last Project Mercury flight, NASA created this like urine collection device that astronauts could wear inside their their little spacecraft. Now, near well, the yeah, his flight was like three days long. Yeah, it was like 34 hours, 22 orbit mission. And system after system started failing mysteriously, and so he had to like take over manual control and pilot the craft through a risky re-entry into the atmosphere. And what went wrong was that his urine bag leaked, and a what? bunch of droplets got into the electronics, which hobbled his automatic systems. It Ho- wasn't the gremlins; it was his pee-pee. Holy shit! <laughs> yeah. Your wow. pee's ruining the electronics. Wow, Koopa! <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm like more blown away that I'd never heard that before than anything. It was a lot of fun learning wow. about this because it's like you know these huge iconic moments, but you're like it's just people in suits. Right. You gotta pee. Yeah, exactly. Everybody poops. What's going on? Well, that was one thing. Like I know on the Gemini program, they Jim Lovell and uh, oh yeah, I can't remember who it was, but uh, uh, Frank Borman. Frank Borman, yes. God, Frank Borman's the man. Is he? Yeah, he like, uh, I, I, it's too much of a tangent, but he once went in front of Congress and has like the most incredible speech you've ever heard. Oh, right on. Yeah, well, he's but, oh, yeah. incredible. But yeah, so the two of them were up for like a long duration mission to see if they could mm-hmm. handle three weeks up there and there were no showers. Right. And boy, Pretty did gross. they stink. Yeah, they were up there for 14 days flying in Gemini 7, which was the longest manned mission at the time. And they're side by side. It's a pro- supposed to prove that they can survive up there. But they basically had no toilet. They just had a plastic bag every time they had to poop. No. So, yeah. <laughs> so two dudes Oof. just living in two weeks. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, so like space toilets didn't actually become more sophisticated even by the time the Apollo mission was launched. Right. So like Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, they had these fecal collection bags that stuck to their butts with adhesive when they had to go, but microgravity could make things get a little messy. Mm. Now, according to this Roberts, this tour guide, he's like, there's a problem of separation. Whatever comes out of you doesn't know it's supposed to come away from you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, you got to pinch it off. Exactly. So 
Oh my God. So each fecal collection bag came with a quote unquote finger cot to allow the astronauts to manually move things along. So then they'd have to knead a germicide into the waste so that gas expelling bacteria wouldn't flourish inside the bag and cause it to explode. No. Like... <laughs> Exploding poop bags. Well, like the gas that your poop is releasing over time. Oh man. It's that your bacteria. poop's farts. <laughs> Your old dookie whispers are going to fucking blow up the whole thing. I know, that's bad. Someone told me that a few years ago. Never heard dookie whispers. I know. And that's one of those that started out like, gross. Can you right. hear somebody? And now you're just like, yeah. <laughs> you, you use it, it all the time because it's too. the best. <laughs> yeah, but so this whole like finger cut thing, it's like a whole 45 minute production. Imagine if you really had to go. That's crazy. So, of course, to minimize their bowel movements, they did something that you referenced on a show before, which is like eating a really high protein, low residue, low waste diet. Like so, so that their body just absorbs all of so it. So that there's no there's no like ex, like needless carbos, mm-hmm. you know, so they basically, didn't just give them a bunch of constipation pills no. and just back them up. God, that'd be like bowel obstruction city. Yeah, exactly. No, but they'd be eating like steak and eggs and other foods that just, it's like your body just takes it and you go along. Right. Wait, steak and eggs up in space? (laughs) And we're thinking like freeze-dried steak and eggs? Gross. Gross. Just like rot gut. When they were peeing, it's basically just like a condom-like pouch attached to a hose that vented out of the vacuum of space by turning a valve, which of course, if you're like a guy sticking your little pee-pee into a thing, they were both like, yeah, it was pretty unsettling yeah, using I bet. that thing. Because it, it was their suction? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I know it has, it spawned the great line in the movie Apollo 13 as they like eject all of their urine. Into space. <laughs> yeah, and Fred Hayes goes, the constellation urine. <laughs> oh, It's wow. great. His super clubs. But so like But then later on they actually had to stop dumping their pee because they were so afraid of the Apollo thirteen going oh, off course. Oh man, we'll even get into that. We'll get into some problems with PP in space. Anyway, so <laughs> today going to the bathroom in space is much less tedious, but does require quite a bit of careful attention and training because they still use this like uh, airflow toilet idea that like sucks into the vacuum of space. But they have to go through what is called position training. So they use a, a positional trainer space toilet for practice. It doesn't actually function. Just call it potty training the <laughs> astronaut. I mean, look, we're, you need to do it again. You're an adult space now. Space potty training. It's, <laughs> it's not really that complicated. But basically, this little potty had diameter of four inches. So astronauts have to go through this training on Earth to make sure their solid waste goes directly into the narrow opening of the space toilets. So these practice toilets have a camera at the bottom and you basically just like have to hover your little tushy above (laughs) and figure out like where your poop is going to go. Wait, you're telling me that they have like a shit sim, like a simulator for taking a shit? Shit (laughs) simulator. Get Ken Mattingly in the sim right now. He's got to take a shit. Shit, Sam Cedar. Yeah, so of course, like, they're not actually shitting, but they're just watching a video to be like, all right, and uh, my calculations are correct. Because um, apparently, like, if you get the shit around the air vents that are providing the suction, Uh things can get really clogged up and you can end up fucking up these, like, multi million dollar toilets. So with the PP, they just, it's a. They've got funnels Never mind, now. You don't want to get into any of the other. Like, yeah, there, it's an expensive toilet, but it's also a pretty fucking important space station <laughs> that know. you're on. That, like, you don't Toilets wanna, clogged. Like, oh no, the filter's filled with shit. Yeah. <laughs> Man. So now these days they have uh, like funnels, like different size, different shapes for boys and girls, but both can use them to stand up. And I love that. They actually have funnels for girls to stand up while they pee now, which is just delightful. Oh. 
I hate, well, I mean, I can squat. I got that flexibility, but right. still, you don't want to have to drop trow. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you, you still have to drop trow. You can open your zipper and just You can? The, yeah. I guess if the zipper, how far, how low does the zipper go? Well, anybody would because, I mean, if I was an astronaut, spacesuits, you still got to do. It goes all also, the way it's not easy for people to just get up and go. So if they're in the spacesuit, they just have to wear a diaper. But we're talking about when they oh, are you out mean of like, spacesuits. Like on spacewalks. Yeah. Like when they're actually like, yeah. Walking around and they it, can't, they're not just like, well, let me whip my dick out. Right. They're, you know? Like I'm in the middle of fixing the Hubble and yeah. I've got a diaper. <laughs> Speaking to your point about like, being worried about pee in space with the Apollo mission. Well, in 1986, the Soviet Union had built the the Mir Mir Mir, Mir space mm. station, which had a bathroom with a toilet that vented the waste into space. But by the time Mir was retired in 2001, incidentally, Ooh. timing, its solar panels had lost about 40 percent of their effectiveness because they realized that a large part of the damage to the solar panels was frozen urine floating in space at high what? speeds. What? No way. Yes way. It like attached to the, and like made it so, that, oh my God. It was like icicles. It was like pee icicles going really fast, bumping into the spa- the sol- solar panels. I mean, you couldn't just eject it away from the solar panels? They're like, this is perfect. Wow. No big deal. That's, yeah. I, that's what I love about these like early space exploration stories oh, yeah. is like the practical things that you can't have really thought of right. ahead of time. You're not thinking about having to take a duke when you're flying into space, right? Right. Well, you're certainly not thinking about like, well, the ejection of some pee is going to wind up like reducing the effectiveness of, of the solar, solar panel. panel. Yeah, exactly. Now, today on the International Space Those Station. Golden rays. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Now on the, I was saying so on the International Space Station, urine gets recycled into drinking water through a filtration system, Ooh, which is Waterworld cool. style. Exactly, or Dune. They do that. They in do, Dune, I, I think, think they, they do that in Dune. Dune. I don't. The big reveal. Pick I've your, read that book. Pick your sci-fi story. <laughs> no. And then like with poo, they just you know anytime somebody goes into the bathroom, they poop into a bag it clamps down removes all the moisture and the bags are collected into a special craft and just like launched into space Uh. wait a minute if they launch them into space does that mean that it comes down and burns up in the atmosphere yes of course it does just raining poop storms i also like like you hear those stories about like the poop icicles on from planes getting dropped on people like could you imagine it's even higher up higher up farther to fall Oh, my God. Well, and <laughs> I like the idea that at the International Space Station, they actually have toilets that have little, like, the, a lap bar that you would wear while going on a roller coaster. Like, like yeah. just to So that you don't you float place. away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, like, little foot straps and stuff like that. Yeah. Could you imagine if you're like, oh, I really had to go, but I didn't I didn't have time to strap in. Oh, man. And you're just, like, <laughs> floating up, but you're still like, I can't stop now that I've started. Go. Can't stop midstream. Yeah. With longer missions like flights to Mars, because, you know, we're talking about reasonably close, all things considered. But like for these longer flights, researchers are thinking about how to recycle feces as well as the urine. Some scientists are proposing that human waste could line the walls of future spacecraft to act like a radiation field, protecting astronauts from the harmful effects of cosmic rays. Well, that really is a real concern. Like most of the ideas that I've seen for how to fix that is by putting water tanks on the outside Mm -hmm. of the ship but that's incredibly heavy to launch into space a bunch of water so if you can just do it with poop (laughs) that is quite the solution the one time that just being full of shit is really gonna work out for (laughs) you anyway so talking about 
alignments mm-hmm. of, of various things. <laughs> Whether and, it's you aligning above the poop chute or... <laughs> or planetary alignments. Because uh. in this movie, there's a lot of planetary alignments. Right. And I also wanted to talk about this thing called Zero Gravity Day. So there's a kind of... It's not a conspiracy theory, but a, a wrong theory. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to call this. But... Every so often, it like keeps coming back up that there's like a belief in a thing called Zero Gravity Day. You, mm. Every few years, it'll pop up on Facebook. Really? You know, mm. it, but this goes back a little ways. And it basically suggests that when the planets align in the solar system in the right way, gravity is decreased on Earth, causing partial weightlessness. Okay. Oh. This all started because back in the 70s, a respected astronomer, Patrick Moore, said... When Pluto passes directly behind Jupiter in relation to Earth, it will exert a tidal pull, temporarily counteracting Earth's own gravity. If you jump at the right time, you'll experience a strange floating sensation. Turned out this was an April Fool's prank. No. And ever since, people keep trotting it out and quoting him as being like, you know, respected astronomer says, get ready for zero gravity day. (laughs) (laughs) All the planets are aligning and it's just fucking bullshit. It was a joke he made. Right. But people still believe in it. Now, a better thing to do when planets align than jump is send a probe. Because, Uh like, in the 70s, we happened to have this once every few hundred years planet alignment, which was uh, not counting Pluto. Mm -hmm. And that allowed a grand tour of the solar system by Voyager probe. And so you can use, like, the different planets to slingshot around to the next one Mm -hmm. and wind up, you know, learning a lot about the solar system that way. So the next alignment that's like that will be in 2151, and that'll be our next like big opportunity to explore the entire solar system mm-hmm. in one mission. Now, at the end of the day, planetary alignments are scientifically meaningless. Sure. Like anytime people are like, and, you know, the stars aligned and all that kind oh, of I stuff. Oh, I say that shit all the time, but very has, facetious. <laughs> right, but like... The planets like, have aligned, we're together, fate. Right, actually the planets are never aligned perfectly because of the variances in the orbits and stuff like mm-hmm. that like the best that you can get is an alignment within 30 degrees okay and and other than that like they will never actually perfectly properly aligned. align makes sense yeah i mean the last alignment that all planets including pluto was in 561 bc that's amazing that they can keep track of that, i know right? that's like because it's constant the orbits they know exactly yeah. when patterns but the, pattern but the next finders. one of that nature is in 2854 2854. Yeah, so it's like every 3,000 years, roughly. Crazy. You know? But it doesn't mean anything, necessarily. It, yeah, just an just opportunity kinda... to, to fact-find. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Cool. That April Fool's prank. <laughs> so in the movie, there's a lot of product placement, such of which were already outdated, if not totally gonzo, by the actual year 2001. Uh-huh. So, like, even in the movie, there's the RCA Whirlpool, which is the maker of the zero-gravity food preparation unit on the moon shuttle. Okay. That had become just straight old Whirlpool by the time the film was originally released. <laughs> so that was a pretty quick change. But then, like, they have the Bell system, their little picture phone. That was mm. has since been divested and was turned into AT&T. But the big one I wanted to focus on was Pan Am. Very iconic. They even came out with a show not... Suit like a couple years ago, Christina Ricci was gonna be in Pan Am. Oh my god, I totally (laughs) forgot that show existed. 
Holy, I watched like the first four right. episodes of that. But it was that, I mean, it was that kind of, because it came out kind of around the, like the tail end of the popularity of Mad Men and like they did the yeah. Playboy Club for a little bit. So it sounded to me like they were trying to just revel in this kind of, you know, 60s nostalgia, Mad right, Men world, right? right? They were yeah, kind of playing yeah, yeah. off of that. But I kind of wanted to look into this. Pan Am was originally called the Pan American Airways and that was founded in 1921. It was just supposed to be a scheduled air mail and passenger service operating between Key West, Florida and Havana, Cuba. But then in 1950, they ended up changing their name to Pan American World Airways. Of course, they just kind of went as Pan Am. And they were the largest international air carrier in the United States from their inception until its collapse on December 4th, 1991. So it kind of symbolizes this golden age of air travel. And they were really known specifically for their innovation in airplanes. So there, there was this Sikorsky aircraft company that they still develop aviation products today. But back then, they made the S-42, which was a 1930s commercial flying boat and that was known as the the flying clipper or the pan am clipper and at the time it was only able to seat 37 passengers the cabin was divided into these like four tiny like small little cabins and lavatories they were like six feet by nine feet so floor to ceiling was barely six feet but they did establish eight world records for carrying weight during its service with pan american world airways so what we think of though when we think of pan am are their strato cruisers that's the like civilian airline version of the c97 strato freighter which is like a military cargo plane these are their like luxury yeah they realized like they had these sophisticated planes they had the ability to carry instead of carrying all these bombs why don't we carry people and their fancy you know cocktails cocktails so many martinis can be held (laughs) so (laughs) every bomb equals 100 martinis exactly so the the strato crews were accommodated between 55 and 100 passengers they had like sleeping berths they had seats you know there was lower deck lounges and bars and shit so people were able to like sit stretch out relax they were able to walk around which i sounds wonderful i mean it is and it's just it's like that is mostly what was fascinating about this is not just oh there's a company that exists at one point but doesn't but like our whole experience of flying is completely different and also yeah like back in the day you know whether it's like a a luxury cruise Mm -hmm. to go somewhere or a luxury train Mm -hmm. like the the fact that like still today when you get on a train you can go to a food cart and, Mm -hmm. and it's like man we really blew it on the airplanes yeah i mean because why like why do we they have to be notoriously uncomfortable and cramped unless you're in business class or first class or whatever gangster assholes yeah <laughs> so from from the stratosphere or stratosphere from the strato cruiser yeah they only got kind of more bougie because, as a matter of fact, the Boeing 747, they first flew for Pan Am in, in 1970. So Pan Am becomes this fucking huge, like, 40,000 employee company. So you're asking, like, what could go wrong? Right. That's what you might be asking. That's what I asked myself. Business couldn't certainly collapse. No, never. Well, let's begin in 1973 with the great oil crisis at the time. I remember, again, we didn't experience this, but I remember just like seeing videos from the time of like- The gas lines and stuff. Yeah, like hours long. But it basically, you know, people aren't flying. It's that much more expensive to afford these things. So- they end up having all of these empty fucking Boeing 747s just like sitting there without being used. And even though the Pan Am had wanted to grow this domestic network, then there was the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978, which instead just kind of fueled more competition because it just removed the federal government control over things like fares, routes, and market entry for new airlines, which I didn't know 
that they ever really had control over, but it totally makes sense because then it like it creates this whole free market system. Right. Well, if you take that free market system to its logical conclusion, it stops being a free market right. because it becomes how it is in America. Well, the barrier yeah. to entry, like, okay, let's say I wanted to start a new airline company right now. Mm-hmm. I can't. Mm-hmm. And there's like the only people who can are the consolidated airlines and they're right. all working with each other to, you know. Exactly. And right. And so it opens the door to the monopolization, which exactly. is what, this is basically the beginning of all of that, it sounds like. There was no control over any of these standards. So there's like an increase in, in number of flights, decrease in fares, increase of passengers and all this sort of thing. Right in 1980, they start selling off their fucking assets and they sell their Pan Am building to MetLife for $400 million. And they're just trying to like stay afloat. So they're like selling on this part. Like Delta starts buying up some portions of it. At a certain Mm. point, it was like you're half Delta and you're half just creditors. Like what the fuck is happening? (laughs) Well, it's just like in a game of Monopoly. Like when you land on Boardwalk with the hotel on it, you start mortgaging all the things that were supposed to make you money. And though you're no longer making money on the things that, you know, were your assets. And it's just this death spiral that you wind up in. Right. So in the middle of this. And then you flip the board. (laughs) Yeah. And you get mad. You like write off your family for the next few years. (laughs) Well, because then even in 1990, like, they're struggling. They're tr- they're just, you know, the Pan Am shuttle that just operates between Washington, New York, and Boston. And, you know, they sold off all of the other shit. Then there's the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in August of 1990, which caused another spike in oil prices. Mm. Then TWA tries to bid for this or whatever. You know, it's just like, at a certain point, then Pan Am just has to declare bankruptcy. And on December 4th, 1991, flight 436 from Bridgetown, Barbados to Miami, a Boeing 727-200 would be the last flight of Pan. <laughs> was that like hard to get a seat on that? <laughs> Probably not. Come back, Pan Am. <laughs> Come, Come back, back to us. I just want to go to the lounge. This movie is largely about pushing humanity forward and pushing intelligence forward. Mm-hmm. Like it starts at the dawn of man. These apes touch a monolith and suddenly they know how to use tools. Mm-hmm. We go to the moon in 1999 and we touch the monolith. And two years later, we have the technology to be at Jupiter. At the end of the movie, you've got the star child, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a representation of the next step in human evolution. Mm-hmm. So let's talk for a bit about where humanity may be going. I saw a quote from this guy, Martin Rees, who's a cosmologist and astrophysicist, and he was asked about whether humanity has a future beyond Earth. Okay. And he was saying that there's nowhere in the solar system that's as comfortable as the top of Everest or the South Pole. Like, really? And we're pretty far away still from like being able to really nail closed environments. Like A fully closed environment is not something that we know how to build on Mars yet. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. But he thinks that within 100 years, there will be privately funded adventurers living on Mars. Sure. And he goes further and says, quote, We should surely wish these pioneer settlers good luck in using all the cyborg techniques and biotech to adapt to alien environments. Mm -hmm. Within a few hundred years, they will have become a new species and the post-human era will have begun. Fuck. Yeah. So he believes that. He, we won't be able to really explore the universe until we turn ourselves into machines or change our biology. Mm-hmm. And that's like really on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if like there is going to be this star child type of like new form that we become so much as we're going to be replacing our biological elements with more and more mechanical ones. And eventually like what right. is at what point to, you know. When it comes to Darth Vader, mm-hmm. is he more machine than man? Right. Like, it, it, like, at what point are you no longer a homo sapien? Well, I have no 
answer except i i have a feeling and i feel like the second thing you said i'm more i feel like at least for this missing link period if we're gonna call back to old lucy Mm -hmm. i think it's gonna be a very slow progression towards that like at first we probably will just incorporate machines into our bodies we do it all the Mm -hmm. time already people have pacemakers you know like wearing an apple watch you're wearing an apple watch i mean we do this shit all the time we rely on these things but I do still think that we're in the place. I see a lot on, of course, Facebook. So this is like my network of people, but are extremely uncomfortable even when they see like sex robots. You know what I'm saying? Like they're like, fuck you. Like Colbert just did a huge speech against that on one of his shows the last week. And I I just think it's, maybe it'll happen faster. But right now people are very like, no, no, we refuse to allow the machines to actually take over human life. But I think it's going to happen whether we like it or not, frankly. Right, yeah. Well, it's also, yeah, because that's really the two different things is like, do we turn ourselves into machines? And like, you know, let's say it's a biological brain, but it's just has all these different inputs. Right. Like, or then there's the other thing of like us creating machines and yeah. that do then live on. But Right. What do you think? What, what, would, what would be your ideal? I don't know when we'll qualify ourselves as no longer homo sapien, mm-hmm. but I do think that within the next few hundred years, like this guy says, that I think it's going to become more of like a niche thing, mm-hmm. like to be a perfectly Person. organic human. It's already like that, dude. Yeah. Well, like... <laughs> Everybody's modified in some way. Well, you mentioned like sex, and mm-hmm. one futurist was asked if sex will become obsolete, and the answer was no, but that having sex to conceive babies is, is likely to become really rare. I would agree with that. Because they think in 20 to 40 years, we'll be able to derive eggs and sperm from stem cells, maybe even parent skin cells. I mean, I that... know. I mean, it's it's just really, really hard to separate like my entire existence and what I've been taught and what I believe to be right. Right. You know, like it's it's really hard to have that discussion because, I mean, luckily doing this show as long as we've been doing it, I don't feel as much of an emotional thing of like really being uncomfortable with that change. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this has nothing to do with you, Joya. It's like, right. it's about how you feel about the future of humanity. Like you don't have to fucking right. use your skin cells to have a baby. You can do whatever the fuck you want. Exactly. But like, face it, dude, we're not, the, Lucy isn't here anymore. Mm-hmm. Joya is not going to be here anymore. Right. And that's okay. But like, if you can make choices off of those, like somebody's skin cells, that leads to a lot of selection of how you want your child to be. Which you know? I hate. And that's the thing is like, so much of our current lives is about accepting who we are mm-hmm. because we can't change those things. When you suddenly have the tools to change those things. <laughs> or saying that, but then if you have enough money changing the things. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly <laughs> Which is what we do it. all the time. Taking that part of it a little bit aside, if you can select how you want your child to be, my real concern is that like parents already have expectations of their kids. Mm-hmm. Like, can you imagine? It's like, you were supposed to be a concert pianist. Dude, like, well... Gattaca, remember? Right, we were yeah, so that's fucked up what made me that. think of that specifically. But. Yeah, it t- completely goes against everything you're saying in terms of like w- everything we teach our kids. It's what's on the inside that counts. Right, it's all of exactly. that. But, the, but to such a degree where now it's like, well, we've been saying that because we haven't had the power to change it. Right. But now we do. Now we do. <laughs> so do we actually care what's on the inside? <laughs> exactly. Uh, but like then I guess you can choose what's on the inside on yeah. some level. Like that, man. But I just liked that it was like, yeah, sex may not be our method of procreation, but, but you guys wanna, people going to fuck. People aren't going to stop wanting a bone zone. Right. That's crazy. I mean, for the people who like to buy and grow their babies organic, they're going to do that Ugh. the old way. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, 
People just like getting busy. Well, I don't know. Separately, <laughs> I saw a lot of speculation that humanity is headed for a kind of race mixing that will eventually lead to like one single worldwide ethnic look. Right. Now, I've heard about don't that. tell any racist xenophobes about that, but no. that's probably going to happen. Right. And I wonder how the choices of parents that parents will be able to make about their kids will affect that progression. Right. Oh my God, we haven't even thought about all of the like the weird social issues that we have with the superficial stuff. Another thing that might happen with human beings is that over the next few hundred years, we may get a lot taller because over the last 150 years, the average height of human beings has increased by 10 centimeters, probably because of the abundance of food we now have. And there's reasons to think that that's just going to continue. And so we may be like six, seven, eight feet tall. (sighs) I mean... You know, I was actually saying this at, the, at a party the other night. I was like, the only shoes I can really fit into are old-timey vintage shoes. Because, audience, just so you know, I'm tiny. I'm five foot two. I wear size five female. Size three little boys. Save money on Chuck Taylors. Um, <laughs> but I was, I was like, yeah, I mean, we've gotten fucking huge. Like, we've, like yeah. people's feet have gotten bigger. People are bigger. It's, the, it's not only the access to food, but also we put crazy hormones in everything that we yeah. eat. Well, it's also funny, like, just thinking about that, I, when I was 17, I got this opportunity to go down and live in Peru and work in this, like, free health clinic in a very poor town. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the pictures of me, I'm 18 years old and I'm a foot taller than everybody around me. Right. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I mean, not to get, like, super bummery about it, but to think about height in relation to health and medical and and nutrition and all of that kind of thing. But totally makes sense that we're going to get, continue to be huge. Yeah. We're GMO'd. We're (laughs) GMO'd. One interesting thing, changing gears, about like us destroying ourselves or the planet before mm-hmm. our future can really come is that I saw somebody make the point that even if those events happened, they probably wouldn't completely destroy humanity. Mm-mm. Like there would be a handful of people who could still like repopulate the earth Hell after yeah. that. And that's just a crazy idea to me. <laughs> like humanity might not be killed by humanity's humanity killing right. thing humanity i just said well be like uh, coupled with what we always say which is that life finds a way there's mm. that right and if like a fucking cockroach yeah can survive a nuclear holocaust like surely humans can well, we'll survive something somewhere. cover ourselves in our own shit and no yeah. radiation gets in yes jeff you solved the problem <laughs> jeff ekman solves the future <laughs> <laughs> is that our episode title yeah <laughs> Did you have any favorite lines? Were there lines no. to be favorite? Yeah, exactly. I can feel it. Yeah. I can feel it, Dave. <laughs> Which really you. made me think. <laughs> I can feel it in my fingers and toes, too. Oh, my God. I'm really glad I watched this. I had a really good time <laughs> yeah it's it's I, I i know you said that like you don't feel like you need to rush out and watch it again and i get that right but i want to like every few years this is the kind of movie that i like to sit down yeah and and let wash over me i mean it's really more of a testament to just like who i am and what my expectations of myself <laughs> yes, i'm but... just being like you saw it though and like that's half the battle <laughs> Well, oh, on that you, note, yeah, that's 50 episodes, guys. Thank you for joining so far. Yeah, thank you so much for on this journey with us to 50 more. Yes, 50 more. I was going to say years, but episodes is fine. Episodes, at least. <laughs> yeah. Like, back in my day, years. our first ex Man, episode. I love the idea of us doing this show after the singularity. 
Totally. Uh, and, and being like, remember back in, in 2016 when we started this podcast? Well, we've talked about how it's been such an amazing time capsule to just know who we are. So yeah. I look very much look forward to when we're fucking 85 coming back and being like, what Listening a whippersnapper podcast. I was. Because yeah. that's what all people, old people say is whippersnapper. That's going to stay true for all, when we become old, we're going to be saying whippersnapper. No, it's just going to be being like, I was such a fuck face. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at Oh That's a Thing dot com on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Joy Mia on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman. And guys, next week, the director of the sequel to 2001 directed another film. Time Cop. Ooh, a lot of oiled Jean-Claude Van Damme's to yeah, go around, get ready. which is fine by me. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of inco- inconsistent time travel, but it's gonna be awesome. Very silly. So join us See next week. Have a good one. <laughs> <laughs>